of Psalms, chapter 133. Psalm chapter 133. It's a very important text as we think about the great need we have in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for unity. You and I will find that when a church is vulnerable, when it's without pastoral leadership, for instance, uh, in that vulnerability, Satan attacks us. And, and, and what he wants to do is attack our unity. He, he wants to divide our hearts and divide our minds. And we've got to stop him. And there's a way that we can stop him with the Word of God. But I want to start here for a reason. In Psalm chapter 133, we read these words. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. What does it mean to dwell together in unity? I'm reminded of a a short poem that an old Englishman named William Cooper, I used to say Cowper because, you know, I grew up a country boy and, 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 and I was uh, ministering the gospel among some Englishmen in London, outside of London several years ago, and they said, Brother Jeff, you're, uh, you're pronouncing his name wrong. And I said, William Cooper? They said, they said, uh, Cowper? They said, no, it's William Cooper, because in English, the W is a U. I said, well, you know, all these years, I misunderstood that my dad sent me out to milk the coos. <laughs> well, I love, I, I, I love him, and I love his songs. I, I, I love his writing, and, and he wrote this little quip. He, he said... To dwell above with the saints in love, oh, what a glory. But to live below with the folks I know is quite another story. (laughs) You see, brothers and sisters, the truth is that the church uh, in the world is filled with imperfect people. Imperfect in every way. And uh, a lot of times we're challenged uh, as believers, as fellow believers, to uh, reach out to the, what, what Paul would call in Romans chapter 14 and 15 as the weaker brothers, the weaker, the more immature believers. And sometimes we're tested. But tonight... I want to think about this in terms of Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold tonight, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together, to live together in unity. And notice the next two verses, how that unity is actually obtained. And what it produces. Look at what he said in verses 2 and 3. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Now stop right there and consider this from a Jewish mindset. 
He's likening brethren's unity to something that was given by God to Aaron as the high priest over Israel. Aaron as the first high priest was commanded by God to place upon him all of the, 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 the regal garments of the priesthood. And most of us have studied that. We, we know what that uh, garment entails. But what I want to notice is that the breastplate that the high priest was commanded to wear had 12 stones, right? And uh, on, on the face of each of those stones was written the name of the 12 tribes of Israel because he actually bore upon his heart the people of God. He would actually be a representative of the children of Israel when he would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood sacrifice to sprinkle upon the mercy seat. He would be representing the children of Israel. He himself was not the children of Israel, but by representation, he would represent all of them at one time and in one place with one sacrifice. So, so David is drawing our attention to the unity that God prescribed for the priesthood itself. It's, it's like that. And it's like that precious ointment, that oil that was placed upon his head. Now, consider this with me. It not only saturated his head, but he says specifically that it ran down over those royal garments. And it had to cover the breastplate. You see, I believe that through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, there is unity among the people of God. Apart from His Spirit, apart from God's Holy Spirit, there will never be lasting unity in any church. So God is placing a high premium on the concept of unity among his people. And we're going to understand more about that tonight later on. But notice verse 3. As the dew of Hermon, that's Mount Hermon, and the dew of, that descendeth upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. We know that the Jordan River has its origin in the top of Mount Hermon. The snows that fall upon Mount Hermon form the river that provides the water for the valleys of Jordan, for the valleys of Zion. And, and in that way, we find the influence of unity is one of productivity, one of growth, one of joy, one of peace, one of stability. These are the things that are capsulated in this short psalm. That's why he says how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. But that's not always the case, is it? You know, Jesus warned, didn't he? Jesus warned time and time again about the tactics of the world and the devil, as well as the flesh, to bring division among God's people. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan's job is to destroy churches. 
Satan cannot uh, reach the face of God himself. He, he would like to, but he can't. He's powerless to do that. So the next best thing in his war against God is to t- attack God's people and to bring about division and heartache and, and hard feelings that are unchristian, mainly in the area of forgiveness. It's, 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 it, 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 it is an attack of Satan when brethren cannot forgive one another. It is, and I'll prove it to you in a little bit. But Jesus warned over and over and over again. Remember, there, there were many times when the disciples, in the early days of their discipleship, the disciples would kind of be uh, at one another. They would wonder who's the greatest among us, especially a man named Peter. It just, it, it seems to stand out that Peter had a real problem with John. And when you study the Gospel of John, which is a, such a wonderful, uh, especially evangelistic gospel, when you study the Gospel of John, you notice that when John mentions the two disciples that ran to the empty tomb to see if Christ had actually risen, it was John that said, the younger one beat out the older one. Well, he was talking about himself. It just seems like there was some kind of uh, competition going on between Peter and John. And and when they uh, spoke to the resurrected Savior, remember it was Peter that asked Jesus, what will this disciple do? Is this disciple going to live longer than anybody and do more than anybody? Remember it was Peter that asked that question. And Jesus said, what is that to you? (laughs) What is that to thee? Uh, It's just interesting to see those little things, that uh, those little indications that there was some competition going on, there was some disunity going on, and Jesus always spoke to it in the kindest and most gentle way because He knew that that was Satan's attack. Now I want you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 17. If you're Bible students tonight, you recognize that chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 are actually what we refer to as the upper room discourse. These are the words of our Savior right before He went to the cross. This is the most intimate, tender, heartfelt words that you'll ever read from the lips of our Savior. And in John chapter 17, we actually hear the prayer of Jesus for His disciples. Have you ever wondered about things like that? You know, while you're studying the Bible and pondering and meditating, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to hear the Apostle Paul pray? Wouldn't wouldn't it be wonderful to hear Peter's prayer? Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear what Jesus would say in His prayer? Well... In John chapter 17, we read what he prayed with his disciples. This was not um, a public prayer. This was a very intimate, private prayer that was only heard by the 11 disciples, the 11 apostles. But in the heart of this prayer, there's something here that I want you to underscore tonight. What was on the heart of Jesus before He went to the cross? Notice with me 
verse 11. And now he's speaking to the Father. I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. See his heart? This is what we would refer to as the capacious heart of Christ. See, see, he knew that their hearts were torn. He knew that they were, they were tearful. They were anxious. They, they were, they were uh, some, somewhat afraid because of what Jesus said he was about to do. Their hearts were troubled. That's why he said in John 14, 1, he said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He'll always tell you what you need to know. That's why we value the Word of God. If you want to know what God's plan and purpose is for the church and for your life, just look at His Word. He's told us. He didn't hide it from us. But He said, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will also return and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What was he doing? What was he doing? He was comforting the troubled hearts of his people. I believe that that's the main objective of gospel ministry, of pastoral care. It is to comfort the troubled hearts of God's people. If we lose sight of that, we lose sight of really the heart of Christ in His gospel. But listen what he says. He says, um, he, he, he's, he, and this is why they're troubled, because uh, I, I come to thee, Holy Father. He was saying he was going away. You're going away? You're, you're going to leave us? That can't be. We can't have, we cannot exist, we cannot survive without your presence with us, Lord. And you're saying you're going to leave? You can understand their trepidation, can't you? You can understand their sorrow and why they're so deeply troubled. So Jesus, in his capacious heart, is praying out loud for his disciples to recognize that he's not going to leave them alone. But it is necessary for him to leave them physically in order to enter back into the glory that he left when he came down into the earth to die for the sins of all his elect family out of every nation. They did not understand what God was up to and what Jesus was about to accomplish. They did not understand that until after the resurrection. So we can, we can fellowship. We can understand why they were such, in such a condition. But Jesus is, is praying out loud and He's saying, I'm coming to Thee, Holy Father. Keep through Thine own name those whom Thou hast given Me. Now there's a wonderful doctrinal principle here. You see, the people of God were given to Jesus Christ even before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ came to that cross knowing exactly who He was coming to save and redeem. There was no guesswork involved in this. And not one drop of the blood of Jesus Christ would ever be wasted. Everyone for whom Jesus Christ died upon the tree of the cross shall be in heaven's pure world without the loss of one. 
That's the kind of Savior we have tonight. He's a successful Savior that paid once and for all the debt of sin on behalf of all those that the Father gave Him in covenant before the world was. And here is His prayer. What can we do for Him when He has done so much for us? Here it is. Those whom Thou hast given Me, that they may be one. That they may be one, even as we are one. See, this is a, this is a precious truth. The redeemed family of God, in their unified worship and their unified commitment to the truth of the gospel, are a mighty force in the hand of Christ. A mighty force of light and salt in a corrupting and a putrefying world. And do we see that even more today than they did then? We're in a downward spiral here in America. We're, we're in a downward spiral in all of our world. But there's something that the people of God are called upon to do, to be enjoined to be committed to, and that is a unified witness to the corruption that is in the world. Amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This is a mandate for the people of God. And the only way we can accomplish it is being unified. Speaking as one. And that was the prayer of Jesus. Drop on down for time's sake. We, I'd love to go through this. It's so precious to me. But, but going down in, in this, in this uh, prayer into verse 21, He says that they all may be one as Thou, Father, art in me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe. So that, that is a purpose statement. Here's the reason it's important to experience unity among the brethren. So that the world may believe that Thou hast sent me. Why is that statement in there? I'll tell you why. Because unity is not something that is acquired naturally. It's not our nature to be unified. It's, it's our nature, and I'm talking about our uh, unredeemed nature, uh, to be independent. I was raised a Texan, and buddy, we're independent. And uh, speaking on that note, I, I, I do apologize for the football game uh, this week uh, between Texas and Oklahoma. I, 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 I feel your pain. But brothers and sisters... I, I was raised a country boy and uh, we treat a woman like a woman ought to be treated and we recognize that there's a difference between that woman and that man. And, and we recognize that uh, a, a real man is called to defend the woman and protect the children. A real man does those things. I, I was raised uh, in a way that I never looked to the government to, to pay me for not working. It doesn't even cross my mind. In fact, my father would roll over in his grave tonight if I would act in such a way. 
those are the independent principles that we we have a part, and I and I really really believe more southern uh, tradition. But brothers and sisters, we got to be careful as southerners that we don't bring natural uh, independence and natural desires into the spiritual kingdom because they won't work here. What works here is when we bear the image of Christ. When we bear His image of love. His image, shall I say, of forgiveness. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, Be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, listen, tender hearted, forgiving one another, no matter what, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. See, that's a spiritual law that goes against our southern grain. But in order for us to function as light and salt, we have to be unified around that principle. So on the heart of Jesus, our blessed Savior, we read these words in verse 22 of John 18, uh, 17. He says, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that so that they may be one even as we are one. Not only experientially, but eternally unified uh, among the redeemed family of God. Based on the revelation of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Listen to verse 23. Here's how it's accomplished, by the way. Unity is accomplished by the indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit. I in them and thou in me, that they may, abide, uh, that they may be made perfect or mature in one... And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. In other words, when the watching world looks at the unity of uh, the church that Jesus built, and they see a unified people, a loving people, a forgiving people, a kind people, they say, you know, there's something different about those folks. They're, they're different. It, it, it has an attractive appeal to those that are watching from the outside. Now, that's important. And I want you to remember what I'm doing. I'm building, I'm building a base right now in this message to show you what I'm talking about is not a, a personal preference. It's not a personal conviction or ideology or what we call philosophy. What I'm sharing with you is God's answer to how brethren should dwell together in unity. Now, let's go to some of the harder parts of our study tonight. First, I want to stop off at the book of Acts. I know that most of us refer to the Acts of the Apostles as the, uh, as the Acts of the Apostles, but more accurately, it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Because it's the Holy Spirit 
that is bringing about something that the world cannot bring about. The Holy Spirit in Acts, just uh, back up, there's a word I'm looking for right here in Acts chapter 1. And you're going to find this word ten times in the book of Acts. It's, it, it would be, and I would encourage you in your private study this week to read the 28 chapters of the book of Acts and every time you find this word, underline it. And notice the context of the, in which this word appears. The word is accord. One accord. The Greek term is homothumadon. And of course, children, I want you to remember, you cannot leave these doors until you say to me, Brother Jeff, homothumadon. I'm kidding. Homothumadon means one-minded or one-souled. Okay? And I just want to notice a few quick references to this so you'll see that that was characteristic of the early church. Listen to what we read in Acts chapter 1 verse 14. These all continued with one accord. Homothumadon. In prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus. By the way, this is the last reference to Mary the mother of Jesus. And it's important here because she was with the early church. She was a part of the church. Uh, she was not over the church. Uh, she, she was not uh, helping her son redeem the church. But she was a member of the church that Jesus Christ, her son, built. And here she is. And she's with the disciples after the resurrection. If the resurrection would have been a false event or a false uh, teaching, why would Mary be a part of that? No, she knew her son raised from the dead, rose again, and commissioned his disciples this way. So here the women are, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And I want you to see that his brethren are dwelling together in unity. Alright, drop down to chapter 2, the great Pentecostal event, right? In Acts chapter 2, in verse 1. How did that uh, Pentecostal anointing ever transpire? How did it come about? Well, here it is. When the day of Pentecost, which is... Now, Pentecost means 50. 50 days after the Passover. In other words, 50 days after the crucifixion. 50 days had transpired. Now the Jewish feast of weeks was now to be observed in Jerusalem. And when that day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with what? One accord. Children, children. Homothumadon. One accord. In one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. I submit to you that's the Holy Spirit of God that Jesus Christ promised would come after His resurrection. And I want you to understand why it came. The Holy Spirit came to testify to the truth that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and that everything that He taught, everything that He preached, everything that He did, was in accordance with the will of the Holy Father, and that He accomplished the very thing that He came into the world to do. 
The Holy Ghost is the, is the surety. He is, he is the witness to the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead. Hallelujah. Bless His name. In John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is, is telling His disciples and you and I tonight, I will not leave you comfortless. I'm not going to leave you as orphan children. When I go, I will send another comforter to you. The word comforter there is parakletos, which means to come alongside another. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you something, uh, or someone, excuse me, that will come alongside you in your journey. And through that anointing, through that uh, spiritual uh, uh, baptism, you are going to experience a oneness that you could never experience without Him. So here they are, one accord, in one place, praising one Savior, and now they're anointed like Aaron was, with the Holy Spirit. The oil represented the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Here it is. Isn't that beautiful? In chapter 2, verse 46... We're skipping over a lot of good things for time's sake. But brothers, trust me on this. Unity among the brethren is a chief concern of our Savior. Listen to this. Uh, we read about uh, the, the mass conversions and the baptism that uh, occurred on that day. And then we hear this, these words in verse 46. And they, this is talking about the church, the believers... Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I want you to notice that singleness of heart. The Greek term that is translated singleness here means no stone. Now that's a strange etymology. That no stones. This was characteristic of the early church that had been anointed by the Holy Spirit when they have a description of their heart. He uses the word no stones. Think about it. Stones are what you can throw at somebody. We do that, don't we? Our words are like stones. You know, that, that childish expression that we used to hear so much, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Did you know that's not true? There have been times in my life in ministry where I would have much rather been hit by a stick or a big stone than to hear the words that came out of the mouth of those that claim to love Christ. The early church was described as a people that had one mind, one heart. No stones there to throw. It was a, a, a sincerity, a, a, a genuineness that, that sadly is missing in so many of our churches today. Many more references. There's actually ten. References to Homothumadon in the book of Acts. And I challenge you to go find them. 
But there's some tough things that we need to deal with tonight. Let's look at, second, uh, at the book of 1 Corinthians. Please go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In my mind, the church at Corinth was a church in crisis. They really were. In fact, I, I, I've known of churches that had troubles. And I've known of ministers that have troubles. But I've never seen churches or ministers that had the kind of troubles that the church of Corinth did. They were a church in crisis. And, and, and how we know that is because of the way the, church, the, uh, the letter is, is begun. By the pen of the Apostle Paul. He, he first commends them as, as fellow believers. But then watch this. Um, come on down to verse 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 10. Watch this. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's important. He's not speaking in His own name. He's not trying to convince them based upon his own ingenuity, his own personality, his own understanding. He says, I want to speak to you under the authority of Jesus Christ, the head of the church. He says, um, um, that, uh, I, I beseech you, I beseech you, I, I, I beseech you. I, that, that, that's an interesting word. Uh, brethren, by the, word, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same Thing. Now catch this. Homothumadon. That you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions. No stigmatism. No schismatic activity. Divisive activity among you. But that ye be perfectly or maturely joined together in the same mind. And the same judgment. You see, that's why I believe that it's important to have unanimity in the church, especially when you're calling a pastor. There needs to be unanimity. The unity of the church is, is precious and priceless, and without it, it can't function the way God intended the church to. So Paul is, he's making his appeal on the authority of Christ, not his own authority. And remember, he's an apostle, but he's, he's appealing to Christ. He, he's saying, uh, the church doesn't belong to me. I'm not the one that died for the church, Paul says. Jesus died for the church. It's his by divine possession and, and the price being paid for the church. It belongs to him. And this is what Jesus, the head of the church, has, has sent me to inform you. Speak the same thing. Mind the same doctrine. Mind the same practice. Let there be unity and harmony among the brethren. Or you're not going to have productivity. You're not. You're not going to have growth. You're not going to have peace. And you're not going to fulfill the design, the major design of the church, which is to be a witness for Christ to the community and world. It's impossible. So Paul begins this very corrective and important epistle by acknowledging that it's Christ's authority that we're looking at. It's Christ's teaching. I want you to speak what Christ said. I want you to understand what Christ taught. I want you to do the things that bring honor to the name of Christ in all that you do and say. 
I want you the same in mind and the same in judgment. For it hath been declared unto me. It's been shown unto me. Paul is saying this. Now, brothers and sisters, remember, I'm speaking to a people that are familiar with the Scripture uh, tonight. And I want you to remember something about the church of Corinth. I want you to remember that when Acts, uh, when uh, the Apostle Paul went to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul was fearful. One of the very few times we ever read where Paul was afraid. It was at Corinth. And he was ready to pack his uh, little bag and get out of there. But the Lord appeared unto him in the night and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. Don't be afraid. Um, because no hand shall be upon thee to harm thee. For I have much people in this city. You see, he had elect people there that needed to hear the message that Paul was going to bring. But Paul, one of the very few times he was afraid, he backed up away from that responsibility and says, Oh, surely God's got a better place in Corinth for me to go. And he ended up being there for 18 months. Now you talk about favored ground. He was there for 18 months. A year and a half. And teaching them day and night, night and day. And he was very close to those people. They were in his heart. That's why he's writing this letter. He says, I know you. And now, the Apostle Paul is ministering in other parts of the world, and he hears this report that there's division in the church that he loves so much and works so hard in the building of. And boy, he lays it out there. Listen to what he says. He says, For it hath been declared unto me that you, my brethren, by them that are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. The word contentions there is erides, which means unseemly wranglings or quarrels among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul. Now watch this division. Watch what's happened to that church at Corinth. Some of you say, I am of Paul. That's one group, if we could call it a clique. I am of Paul. And then there's another group over here that says, I, I'm of Apollos. Now remember, Apollos was a great preacher. And then a, a third group comes along and they say, well, well, we are of Cephas, and that's the Jewish name for, for Peter, he, he, the Apostle Peter. So you've got, you've got these three uh, schisms. You've got a group that's loyal to Paul, a group that says they're loyal to Peter, a group that says they're loyal to Apollos, and then you've got a fourth group. And guess who they say they're loyal to? Christ. Somebody says, well, I'm glad that there was somebody loyal to Christ. Let me tell you something. Those are the ones that worry me the most. Because they're the ones that say that nobody's as good as I am because I am following Christ. Nobody knows more than I do because I know Christ. I follow Christ in everything. And if you are going to be a good member of this church, you're going to be, have to be just like me. The Apostle Paul is laying it in there. And remember, he's speaking to people that he loves. People that are on his heart, like the high priest, bearing the children on their heart. Here is a, a shepherd of their soul. And he's acknowledging, he's identifying the, the, the divisions among them. And he's, he's going to ask a question in verse 13. It's an obvious question. Is Christ divided? 
You say you're Christian. Is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? What did Paul do for you? What did Apollos do for you? What did Peter do for you? They didn't do anything for you uh, that would uh, amount to anything comparable to what Jesus Christ did for you. Jesus is the one that died for your sins and rose again for your justification. And boy, much more could be said here. But you get the point. He's identifying their disunity. And he's saying, there's no way you're going to fulfill your, the purpose that God has given you as a church, as the body of Christ, while you're in that condition. Mm. All right. I told you it was kind of tough tonight. But you know, the wonderful thing about the true gospel, I said the true gospel, the true gospel will expose what's wrong, but it'll always tell you how to get back to what's right. Would you remember that? These preachers that think it's their job to hold a chair and a whip over God's people and tell them everything they're doing wrong and never tell them anything to do right, that is not the gospel. And it's a shame. It's a shame. So the Apostle Paul is not just identifying the divisions and the reasons for those divisions. He's also going to give them the way to heal them. Go all the way to the end of this letter. Go all the way back to the very last chapter, which is 50, uh, uh, chapter uh, 16 in uh, 1 Corinthians. Here's where you see the heart of a true servant. This is a true, true pastor. This is a pastoral heart. Um, in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, uh, so much could be said here. But what I want tonight is verses 13 and 14. Now read this with me. There's five uh, mandates. There, there's five commands. These, these are called staccata commands. They're just brief statements that are from the pen of the Apostle Paul, that is a perfect remedy for all division and disunity. Here it is. Watch ye, number one, be watchful. Stand fast in the faith, number two. Quit you like men, number three. Be strong, number four. And number, 14, uh, number five is verse 14. Let all your things... Be done with charity, love. Not any kind of love, you know. He's he, he's not talking about phileus love, the friendship love, eros love, the uh, familial love. Uh, he he's not talking even about uh, uh, storke love, uh, parental love, or, or or the love that children have for their parents. He he's not talking about that. He's talking about agape love. He's talking about Christ-like love. Sacrificial love. But watch these commands. First, he, he uses the, the Greek term, which means to be alert, vigilant. Um, 
We need to be vigilant. We need to be on guard. What do you need to be on guard about, church? What do, what do, you, what do you need to be guarded against? What do you need to be watchful about? You know, Jesus over and over and over tells His disciples, watch and pray, watch and pray. Why? What are you watching out for, church? Well, I'm going to, number one, I'm going to watch out for the devil. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Peter put it pretty plain. He says the devil, our adversary, our great adversary, uh, the devil goes about um, seeking whom he may devour. Because that's his job. I believe that God uh, has sovereign power over the devil, but I want you to know that the devil only knows how to do one thing, and that's tear up the people of God in every church he can. Somebody says, well, I'm glad the devil's out in the world and we don't have to worry about him in here. Oh, let me tell you, he, he comes through some doors and he has influence. In too many lives. And he is a divider. He's a destroyer. Be on guard for the devil. Uh, be on guard for temptation. As Jesus taught us in Matthew 26 verse 41. Be on guard tonight. Be on guard for false prophets. As Paul warned the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31, that said, you know, he said, when I depart, I know that grievous wolves will enter in, not sparing the flock. They don't care about the church. I tell you, brothers and sisters, a, a man claiming to be a minister of the gospel that doesn't care about the church and doesn't care, uh, uh, doesn't try to unify the church, and doesn't try to stabilize the church, and, 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 and build the church up on the Word of God itself, is a false prophet. You better mark it down. He's not real. I'm not talking about a yes man. I'm not talking about somebody that's trying to please everybody. I'm not talking about men pleasers. I, please understand, I'm talking about people that really care for your soul. There's a bunch of them out there. And all they want to do is take advantage of the church. You better be careful. You better be careful. You better watch. Watch out for the devil. Watch out for temptation. Watch out for false prophets. I'm going to say this, and I might get in trouble right here. But you better watch out for indifference and apathy. Indifference. Indifference. Not caring about the church. Not caring about the truth. Not, not caring about our history. Not, not caring about one another. Apathetic, apathy is a dangerous thing to a, a vulnerable church. It can happen. I've seen it happen. And, and it's deadly uh, to any people. It's the give up, uh, it's the give up-itis. But instead of giving up, the Bible teaches us to go up. And, and instead of shutting up, the Bible teaches us to speak up. It, it's not a time for apathy. It's not a time for indifference. Well, I don't care who you call to preach. I don't, I don't care who's the pastor. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter to me. That's apathy. And it's deadly. 
I'll tell you who you want to call for pastor of this church. The one that the Lord sends you. Make sure of that. Well, uh, well, bro- brother preacher, I, I, I just, I just think we need to look at something available and something close by, something that that uh, uh, has some kind of a uh, uh, an ease to it. I, I, I want this thing to be easy because you know the church is vulnerable, just like you said. But the best way to fix that is to get somebody in here quick. We got to have it now. Oh, you did. I didn't know you did that. I didn't know that. But, it, but, but see, that's a temptation, isn't it? And my question is, you know, does it work? Oh, no. And by the way, it never does. You know, who you need, you know what you need to be doing. You, and I think mo- a lot of you uh, that have been Christians a long time, you know this, but maybe you just need reminded. There needs to be some days of fasting and prayer. You see, it's such a serious thing. It's a serious moment in your church history. Don't you dare be apathetic. Don't you dare be careless in that. It's a very vital part of the ministry of this church. And it requires sincerity. It requires diligence and vigilance. Gregoreo, it, uh, the, the vigilant and diligent heart. I love, I love what the Apostle Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. He said, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There needs to be, there needs to be some days of fasting and prayer. Being serious with God, God here we are, here we, we are. You've been so good to us these 30, 40 years to be in this place. There's been a lot of good teaching from this pulpit. A lot of, uh, a lot of people have experienced Christ in this place. We, we, don't, we don't want to uh, sell that short. And Lord, here we are now and, and we're not ready to give up. We're ready to go up. We're, we're not ready to just give away. Uh, that heritage and, 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 and the good things that go, you have done for us, Lord. We're, we're here. We're right before you. Just kind of like Hezekiah when they came to him and says, You know, this guy named Sennacherib has come down and he's got an army of 186,000 people. And, and, and Hezekiah, you've only got 6,000 soldiers in your whole army. How are we going to get through this? And Sennacherib wrote a letter. To Hezekiah, and he said, uh, Hezekiah, I'm going to make you a real good deal here. I'm going to take out both of your eyes. I'm going to take all of your children uh, as slaves. I'm going to uh, take all of the treasury out of the house of God. And if you do this, if you do this, I won't break down your walls and destroy the city of Jerusalem. What a deal! You know, it sounds like some of the political deals we're hearing about today. What a deal. Paying folks to stay home instead of work. What a deal. Making everybody drive electric cars. What what a deal. But you know what Hezekiah did? He wasn't indifferent. He wasn't apathetic. He took that letter 
and he went to the house of God. Oh, what a moment to see the leader get on his knees. Put that out before the Lord. And just acknowledge, Lord, this is too big for me. I I don't know what to do. I, I, I don't know what we need, but we know you do. And we're going to trust you. Immediately, God spoke to his servant Isaiah. And he says, you go tell that king. You go tell him. I heard his prayer. I saw his tears. I see his sorrow. And I really do care. And I'm not going to leave him high and dry. You tell him because of his faithfulness. To trust me. Not one arrow. Is going to fall within the wall of Jerusalem. And that night God sent one angel. And destroyed the whole army of Sennacherib. Now I don't know how you feel about it brothers and sisters. But I'm going to tell you that I believe that the God in the Old Testament is the God in the New. He still hears our cry. He still cares about His people. But His people should never be apathetic. We need to put it before the Lord. Lord, who would you have come and serve this church? Show us. Give us evidence. And make us submissive to what your call is before we make any other call. Be unified. All right, we're going to stand, right? We're going to watch. We're going to stand fast in the faith. Somebody says, well, I'll tell you what we need to do to build our church. We need to compromise the truth. We need to decentralize Bible doctrine. We need to have a big uh, fancy band and a lot of colored lights to where uh, people uh, uh, walking in the doors of this place think they're they're in a disco. That's what we need. We we need to change this and and change that and and change it. We're we're just too fuddy-duddy and and too conservative and... uh, we need to change our teaching and our preaching and our style and our tradition and so forth. And, and the Apostle Paul says, stand fast. I don't care what the world does. I, I don't care what the world is teaching. God does never want His church to compromise Bible truth. No matter what the cost. Stand fast. Oh, How are you going to do that? You're going to be unified. This is how you do it. You're unified in that commitment. You're you're not going to be apathetic or indifferent. You're you're going to stand fast in the faith. You're going to quit you like men. And and that's just simply a reference to maturity. He's calling us to be mature in our walk. uh, Mature in our worship. Mature believers. It's it's mature believers that will go the extra mile to forgive and to heal. It's the immature that will let it ride. He says, I want you to quit like men. Stand strong. 
I love this. Boy, I could preach an hour on this part. Uh, to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, right? Uh, you know, Second uh, uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and many, many other good verses that, that just declare that we are strong when we're strong in the Lord. But mainly, isn't this the main point, really? Let all your things be done with charity. That, 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 that's such a, a timely message for us. Because there's so many things going wrong. There's so many things that we'd like to like to say and like, and like to change about ourselves or about um, the, the actions of the past. And, there, and there's uh, not very many things we can do about the past. It's gone. But there's something you can do about tonight. There's something you can do about tomorrow. You know, if you're harboring in your heart animosity against an individual, a fellow believer. It's hard because you've been hurt. And you're right. They don't deserve forgiveness. But child of God, neither did you. You don't forgive forgiveness. We don't deserve the church. The church is a precious gift from God. We don't deserve it, but it's a gift of God's grace. So walking in the light of that grace... And, and that love, I'm able to forgive all those that have hurt me. Not in my own strength, but in the strength of Christ. Not in my own uh, uh, ability, but in the ability that the Spirit grants me. Let all your things be done with love. Charity. Love in action. And in doing that, you're going to be able to fulfill the purpose for the church. And one last verse, and I'll close before you kick me out of here. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul said, Let this bind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know what I pray for often in my own life, in my own personal walk with the Lord? Lord, give me your mind. Lead me to the people that you want me to share the gospel with. I do, every day I'm praying this. And Lord, uh, help me see with your eyes. Help me feel with your heart. Help me... Uh, help me be a catalyst for unity among your people and, and not someone willfully having to have my way. My way or the highway, that kind of stuff. That's of the flesh. That's, that's not Christ. Aren't you glad, friends, that Jesus didn't turn back from His redemptive work on the cross because of your unworthiness or your attitude or your actions? Aren't you glad that He didn't give up on you? Even though you and I might give up on Him, He doesn't give up on you. Aren't you glad of that tonight? Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Jesus told you what His mind was in John chapter 17, that you may be one, even as I and the Father are one. One in purpose. One in mind. 
one in vision. I think the, the church here, with such a rich history of grace teaching, of truth teaching, I don't think God's through with you yet. But maybe it's time for you together in the spirit of fasting and prayer and in the diligence of your hearts and minds, reaffirm your vision as the church of Christ in Coweta, as, as His witness in this community. And I believe what you're going to see is the benefits, the fruit of peace, of joy. These precious children here on my right, they, they've been so kind. They're, they're, not, they're not drawing little pictures and, and, and uh, giggling with one another. You know, they're, they're actually listening. And the reason they're listening is because they know that God has sent a man here tonight that cares about them. You need to care about them. Work together for unity. Thank you for your good attention. God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer together. Please stand. Kind Heavenly Father, we...